Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I have to tell you something, people. Today, I'm sitting there. I'm on GoDaddy, which I get my internet, my this where my website is through. And they had 99 cent domains. So I figured, you know, a while ago, I bought Cooper Talk Jukebox, which I played past episodes, which I've only posted three. So go check it out. There's Terry Nunn, there's Kenny Aronoff, and there's Jack Russell. They're past episodes, the best of Cooper Talk when it comes to music. But I wanted to see what coopertalk.com, if that was available. So I went on, and now it was available like four years ago, and I didn't get it. And then all of a sudden, my show started getting popular, I guess. And I went on, and they basically, they wanted to sit there, and they wanted to give it to me for... $4,095. $4,095 for a domain, which is just non, it's, it doesn't make sense because I'm, I'm a struggling artist. You know, I'm an entertainer. I don't have $4,095 to give away for my domain. So if you're listening to people, the holidays are coming up. And if you own coopertalk.com, I hope you have a crappy holiday because that's highway robbery. Anyway, we have a great show today. I'm very excited to have this guest. Um, turns out she knows a friend of mine from college and he said, Steve, this 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 woman has an amazing resume, which she does. Amazing saxophone player, and she's played with Springsteen, and she's played with Letterman's band. So you know, right then, I was sold. And she has a new CD coming out. My guest is Mindy A. Bear. How you doing, Mindy? Hey, thanks for having me on the show. <laughs> now, <laughs> Always glad to be with you. That's very cool. Well, no, see what's great is like for your like your name is. Is different, Mindy A. Bear. It's a very nice name. So MindyABear.com is probably easy for you to get. But I just, it gets so irritated when people try to take advantage of us when we're just, you know, we're $4, just... $4,000. Yeah. That's a lot. I mean, it gives me street cred. You know what? I actually, I, I feel your pain because uh, one of the songs on my new record is called Pretty Good for a Girl. And I wanted to start, uh, you know, a women's empowerment site and kind of lift up women. And I had this whole grand notion of building this website. And prettygoodforagirl.com was taken. So I asked the girl who owned it, you know, could I buy it from you? And, uh, you know, I said, you know, what would you want to sell it for? And uh, she came back and she said, I'll sell it to you for ten grand." Yeah. <laughs> and I was like... Well, it looks like it's pretty good for a girl.net, isn't it? Right. So, uh, it's and, pretty good for a girl.net, and I, I let her have her site. <laughs> and now I bet she has nothing posted. Like, I went to coopertalk.com, and there's nothing on it. It's, it's different if they were doing an actual site, but there's nothing posted. It's just like it says domain no, for sale. I, this girl, too. Yeah, she had it all blocked off. Um, it was for her private clients that they would come in and, and she's a graphic artist so no one can see anything on that site yeah it's all private so yeah i totally feel your pain i i just got off the phone with her and i was like really yeah wow <laughs> but your your web <laughs> but your actual website the mindyabear.com is is wonderfully set up you have the bio you have everything you can click on to your uh to your shop and you have your new cd there with the bone shakers now how did you how did you get into putting out your own CD, how did you get your band together? How did you come up with a name? Because you played background and you've done your own uh, albums in the past, but you've also played with a lot of different people. What's it like when you get a band together? You know, being a part of a band is a very different animal than, you know, being a solo artist. And uh, I, you know, I came up the ranks as a sideman. You know, I, I tried and tried to get a record deal early on and Everyone just looked at me like I had a tail or three heads, you know. But you play sax and you sing. You have to choose one or you, 
you know, you're a woman who plays sax. We don't know how to market that or, you know, uh, everything. So, yeah, I came up the ranks playing in other people's bands, you know, the uh, Tina Marie and Adam Sandler and the Backstreet Boys and uh, Jonathan Butler and Duran Duran. Uh, but then at a certain point, I I started my own band and I actually got a record deal. So for the last you know, 15 plus years, I've been a solo artist and I choose really carefully what I moonlight doing, you know, Aerosmith, you can't say no to Steven Tyler, right. um, you know, American Idol, uh, that was a really cool thing to do. I couldn't say no to that. Bruce Springsteen, obviously, that's just the pinch me moment of the century. I couldn't say no to him. Um, but now with the Bone Shakers, it is a totally different and cool, cool experience. So about three years ago, uh, I sat in with my friend's band, The Bone Shakers, and he and I have played together on and off for years. We've been on each other's records. I'm a fan. You know, we've been close friends. Um, and they happen to be playing on a stage, you know, next to ours on the same festival. So I, you know, bounded over to the stage, sat in. It was, it, it, it was amazing. It was electric. It was inspiring you know that's what music's supposed to be and boy by the end of the set he and i looked at each other and went wow well maybe we we gotta do this every night well i think maybe we make this official and just you know make it mindy abear and the bone shakers it sounds pretty cool uh so we did and and our first record was a live record and this record that we just put out two months ago this is our first studio record and it's a blast and the guys in the band are just phenomenal musicians, just ridiculous uh, characters and, you know, put us all together and, and it makes a pretty uh, crazy, fun band. Now, do you think, do you think because you did play for other bands before and then you were a solo, do you think it made it easier for you to go into the studio? Because I'm guessing, you know, they're a, a band, the Bone Shakers, and they're your Mindy Bear. When you go into the studio, what's that like? Because now you're dealing with different personalities, but you're recording. Yeah, I think, you know, being in a studio is definitely kind of a test of, um, you know, how you work together and, and uh, you know, it's a test of the marriage for sure. And uh, and I was used to being, you know, everything to everyone in the studio. I was used to calling the shots and, and having the last say about, you know, what happens here, what happens there. And it's funny, I, I look back to the demos I brought the band. We had three days of rehearsal, and then we spent five days in the studio with uh, Kevin Shirley uh, producing the record. So those three days in rehearsal, I brought in, I brought in probably 26 songs. Uh, that I, you know, had written some of them with, with uh, Randy Jacobs from, you know, the Bone Shakers, and some of them I'd written with other people. Um, and we just tried them out as a band and kind of felt through them and, you know, had them morph and change and really picked the ones that we loved and that we could make something of as a band uh, that, you know, that spoke to us. So once we got in the studio, I mean, it did morph and change, and we all had a say. And you know what? It was really comfortable, and it was fun. And I look back at the demos now, and I can't believe how much they changed. And it's it's fun to to have that initial idea of what a song can be, and then you bring it to the band, and it becomes better, and it becomes stronger, and it becomes cooler, 
And, uh, you know, what a gift to have people around you that make you better and, and that you can, you know, hand off your ideas to. And they, you know, they just, they, they go crazy into the stratosphere and, and uh, make them great. Now, what was the band's thought of you coming in and all of a sudden it's from the Bone Show, it's from being the Bone Shakers, it's Mindy A. Bear and the Bone Shakers. Were they cool with that? Or was that, did that have to take a little groveling? Or it was because your name was somewhat more known? Or how does it happen? Like, how does someone forge to the front of a band, especially when the band's already been together? Yeah, Randy Jacobs started the Bone Shakers, you know, early, mid-90s. He, he started it out of Was Not Was. They weren't touring as much. Um, he was playing... Uh, with the guys in Bonnie Raitt's band and, you know, just trying to figure out something to kind of fill in the blanks now that was not was, wasn't on the road. And, you know, he started the band and, boy, they've been around since then doing their thing, playing, you know, blues and rock festivals and stuff, just a killer band. Um, uh, but he's always been a side man with other projects, too. So you'd see him on the road with, you know, uh, Willie Nelson or in the studio with Tears for Fears or you know, doing stuff with uh, Bonnie Raitt, you know, a lot of different people. Um, when when he and I sat in, you know, when I sat in with his band, we just kind of looked at each other, and he knew, you know, I had a career that I would headline jazz festivals and, you know, music festivals and stuff like that. I had had more success, uh, you know, with sales and radio and stuff um, than the Bone Shakers had had, um, but the Bone Shakers, you know, had been making records longer than me. So we just felt like, you know what, it, 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 let's just put it together and see what happens. We didn't think about it too much. Um, and half of the guys in the Bone Shakers at that point were guys from my band. And, you know, Randy Jacobs was playing in my band at that point, too. So it was really incestuous. It wasn't like I was walking into some band who didn't know who I was. I mean, we've all been friends for over 20 years and... You know, these guys and I have played together in a, a bunch of situations over a bunch of years. So it was almost like we looked at each other with this kind of glint in our eye and like, wow, how did we never think of this before? This was really cool. <laughs> well, it's great that you guys and you guys had a camaraderie ship, which is always good, because I know that's the one thing I've talked to people in bands that they always say, you know, if you leave a band and you start a new band, you know, you really have to gain the trust of those people. But you guys had the trust, which must make it a much easier than just getting to know somebody like answering an ad back in the day and like the recycler, you know, back when the bands would go, we're looking for a bassist. Yeah. You know, it must have been good just to... No, this was just a comfortable old shoe, you know. This was just like, oh my God, we've made records together forever. You know, he, Randy Jacobs has been on my records. I've been on his records. You know, my, the guys in my band have played on his records and in his band and vice versa. We've all been a family for a long time. And by the way, when you see the band live, uh, I'm not just, you know, the only front person out there doing it and the guys are in the background. I mean, Randy Jacobs is up there, you know, doing splits and jumping into the air and doing crazy stuff. I mean, uh, everyone in the band is definitely a front person and everyone sings and it's, it, it's, uh, it's a pretty pretty crazy fun adventure now the new album how would you define what the music is what would you label it as it is, is it a morph is it what is what can people expect when they hear it you know this is a blues rock record and uh it's been wild to be on the charts the blues charts with you know people i just love and 
and respect. It's it's a really different chart to be on. And, you know, we're right next to Greg Allman one week and we're right next to Tedeschi Trucks the next week. And it's, it's really fun. Uh, you know, this is music I listen to and these are artists I, I uh, well, Greg, you know, I worked with, but I mean, it, you know, these are artists I really I listen to, you know, so it's, it's great. It's so much fun. Um, but yeah, we've been on the Roots music charts and the blues charts and the kind of triple A charts, which is kind of rock and, and blues and Americana. And uh, the record just became kind of this, this uh, morph of all of our influences. You know, um, Randy Jacobs is from Detroit, you know, so he brings this kind of funk rock uh, edge to it. You know, uh, me and Third Richardson, the drummer, were from Florida. And, uh, you know, going back to my roots, I, I bring some soul and some a little swamp, you know, and a lot of rock and roll. Um, so it's it's fun to have a little bit of the swamp in there, too. And, uh, you know, Derek Frank, he's been playing in Shania Twain's band and, and uh, been out there with a bunch of rock bands as well. So that's kind of fun. Rodney Lee on keyboards. Um, he comes from gospel, R&B, electronica, and, and the guy is really just um, deep musically, and, and he brings a lot to it, uh, from playing a mouth harp all the way to, uh, you know, playing crazy B3 and, and uh, having fun back there. So, you know, the record has a lot of abandon to it. It's definitely one of those records that you listen to, and, and you can feel all of us just giving a thousand percent, you know, it's it's definitely we're playing with all of our heart and soul every second of this record. Now you said earlier you brought you brought in personally twenty six songs. Did you have an idea of how many songs you would put on the final product? And what is it like as an artist sorting through what you're going to do? Because I'm sure other people had input too. I mean, it's it must be a great I you know it must be great having. Uh, more material than you need and also that may go into albums down the road but what was how do you decide what's going to go on there and how many songs were you aiming for you know i was aiming for probably 10 or 12 songs but i i really uh, i'm a freak about getting the right songs and i wrote over 50 songs for the record uh you know went to nashville for uh, a bunch of trips and I wrote with a bunch of people here in L.A., both friends that I've written with for years and people I hadn't written with. I was really reaching out to to people, you know, trying to expand my world and trying to kind of uh, expand my writing and write the, the right songs for this band. It's such a special group of people. How do you um, bring out that essence of the energy that this band, you know, puts out? And uh, so I just wanted to write songs that were, A, meaningful to me um, and the band, and B, would be that right vehicle for us and really show what this band was because we made the live record. People knew what we were live, and, and that's what we've been is just a, a killer live band. But, you know, when you make a studio record, you better define what the band sounds like, and you better you know, put it out there in plain sight. This is what we are, you know, this is who we are. This is what we sound like. This is, you know, why we're strong and this, you know, all that stuff. So yeah, I brought in 26 songs because I had kind of pared it down thinking, okay, these are the best of the best. Um, but then 
you know, you let the guys have their way with the songs and kind of let them feel it out. They're all just immense musicians and uh, see what speaks to them, you know, and some of them they co-wrote and some of them they didn't. But, you know, it becomes really clear sometimes when we're all playing it together instead of me playing it with someone I co-wrote it with, you know, on an iPhone with a guitar and a keyboard and, a, you know, whatever. Um, you know, when we all come together and play something, it either feels right or it doesn't feel like us. And, uh, you know, we chose 12 that felt like us and 11 made it to the record. Now, we threw one out at the end. Was there any that when you wrote, you? I mean, as a writer throughout your career and when you do this, are there any ones that you sit there and when you sit down and you write, you just know this is going to be a kick-ass song. Like on the, on the new album, did you, is there anyone you just got that one and said, you know what, I can write 50 songs, but this one is definitely going on. Yeah. There were a few of them that I, that I really felt like, Oh my gosh, this has to be on there. There's a song um, that Randy and I wrote uh, called pretty good for a girl uh, that I was telling you, you know, I, I got so inspired by it. I wanted to build that website and, you know, $10,000 later. Nope, it wasn't going on that website. <laughs> so, um, you know, we got we got really inspired writing Pretty Good for a Girl, and it was basically a tongue-in-cheek song about things people say to women, you know. Women are doing just amazing things every day. I mean, climbing mountains and saving lives as scientists and surfing the biggest wave. I mean, I'm inspired. That's you know, the glass ceiling breaking all over the place. Um, but then, you know, someone comes up and says, yeah, that's pretty good for a girl. Right. <laughs> you know, it was my song to write, definitely. So we had so much fun. But then bring it to the band. And boy, it just became this, this uh, you know, powerful kind of, you know, rock and roll. Oh, my God. Damn right, I'm pretty good for a girl. That's right. You know, it became this kind of call to action, and uh, it was great. So it's fun to see things, you know, really morph and change like that. And so that was one of those songs we just looked at each other and went, well, well this has to be on the record for sure. <laughs> now, with your with the record, did you do you put the, the songs in order? I talked to musicians who a lot of them were very, very succinct about how they put their songs in order. Like, they, they do it because, you know, I know I grew up, we would buy albums and we would listen to the albums. It made a difference which order the songs were in. You know, you sit there and go, wait a second. You know, to me, you know, I can still name the order Springsteen Born to Run. Weird thing is, it's different on the cassette than the album, which is very weird. I found that out when I got the cassette one time. But did you, did you guys uh, consciously put the songs in a certain order or did did the company do that or how does that work? I love that question because it's such an old school question. I mean, you know, everybody now says, just release singles. The album is outdated. Don't even think about albums now. And, you know, I just like, I just look at them and go, no. I love making an album. I love the, the journey. And it's supposed to take you on this journey. And, it, and you know, you're supposed to feel the songs and, and you know, go with me. So, yeah, we, we definitely um, spent a lot of time on what song you know, went on first, what song went on next, and how they felt together, and and how it, you know, uh, how the journey was. So uh, I sat there with 
all the demos and then, you know, the finals actually in my iTunes and I would just, you know, put them back and forth, you know, move one up to number four, move one, you know, move this song behind that song and see how it felt, you know, kind of going in. And uh, Randy Jacobs did the same thing. Kevin Shirley, our producer, uh, did the same thing. So it was mostly the three of us just going back and forth with different, you know, ideas of this song should go behind this song because it just feels so good going into it. It just flows, you know. So uh, we took the best of what the three of us came up with, and uh, and that's the order that you see on the record. Now, since you're, as you said, because you you love the albums, and a lot of us, you know, we do love albums. It was a great, it was a great ritual going to the record store. The album cover itself, your album cover yourself is, uh, it's it it looks like an album, and that sounds weird, but you know, we we grew up with different kinds of albums. But like, you know, it's reminiscent a little to me of like you know Leonard Skinner. Um, street survivors because you guys were all on the street who came up with the concept yeah. who came up because it's such a great scene because you're up front but it's black and white and it's i'm guessing it's on it's in la i'm trying to think it's, it's not on sunset is it it sure is okay yeah got a good eye and uh because of trees now now how did whose idea for the cover was it and and how do you sit there and look at the proofs because you want it to look cool and you and i'm sorry i don't want to be you know to some listeners just you know a lot of these punks, punk kids now, they, they don't care about the album cover. But the people who really appreciate right. albums are going to want something cool. Because, you know, that's got a cool look. Who decided on the, the setup? And then how did you decide on the location? And everyone's like, it's just, it's very subdued. It's very cool. I love that. Um, you know, it was, it was pretty organic the way it happened. We were recording at East West Studios, which is the name of the record, the East West Sessions. And so uh, East West Studios is this iconic studio in Hollywood. I mean, all those um, all those Frank Sinatra records that you see him at the podium, that's East West Studios. And uh, when we were recording there, it was the Foo Fighters on one side of us mixing their record and Justin Timberlake on the other side working on his new record. I mean, it, it's just a phenomenal, ridiculous studio, right? Um, we only had so much time uh my bass player was leaving on tour and we had time to record and then he had to be out at like you know 10 a.m the next day for rehearsals for shania twain's tour and i'm looking at him going what when are we gonna shoot the record cover i mean we need artwork baby we need like the band you know this isn't like i can go in and just put my face on it not my record it's our record so we literally decided we'd leave from the studio at 7 a.m and we'd just we'd shoot the record in the morning and just kind of tough it out and get Derek where he needed to be so it was kind of like the hardship you know uh record artwork session but we were all up stupid early and we just walked outside the studio and walked down the street so we were shooting on the street, shooting on the sidewalk, and it was actually my boyfriend, Eric, that was like, hey, there's no one in the street. Run out in the street. See what it looks like. You know, there were all the palm trees and everything. And uh, we ran out in the street, and it was cool. We ran out a- about four times because traffic started coming. I mean, it's Sunset Boulevard. Right. And uh, so we'd run back, you know, and we were like, hey, that, that was pretty cool. That felt pretty, you know, it felt pretty rock star. Let's do that again. 
and uh, and we got the shot. And I I kind of looked at the guys. I was like, I think that's I think that's the cover. That it just felt right, you know. But yeah, that's the way it happened. And and I love that it's in Hollywood. I've lived in Hollywood for a lot of years. We all met in Hollywood. We recorded in Hollywood. It all made sense. And the shadows you see on the front of the record. Um, it's because the sun was coming up. Some people have asked me, "Are those? Did you guys put those shadows in? Because they look really cool." And uh, I was like, "No, it was literally like 7:30 in the morning at that point. It, it was just the sun coming up." <laughs> now, what do some of your longtime fans think of that associate you with jazz more? Do they? Are is this something that you know throws them off a little bit? Because you know you, that's the one good thing about what you do is you've played with so many different genres of music, whether it be you know your solo career or playing with I just said Aerosmith, which I want to talk about later. But what do do you get feedback from people going, wait, this isn't this isn't the Mindy we thought of, or, or they like, wow, Mindy, we loved your jazz stuff, but man, you can kick some ass. I mean, what have some feedback been from people that are longtime fans of yours? You know, it's interesting if if my fans have seen me live, and and most of them have, because that's what we do. Is we're just on the road all the time. They they don't think twice about it. I mean, we've always been rockers. I've always covered the Rolling Stones and Jimi Hendrix, and you know, we've always been doing that. So we've definitely been the rockers of the jazz world. Um, but this is definitely taking it a step farther. You know, and it, it kind of started with my Wild Heart record um, three records ago. You know, I had Joe Perry on the record playing with me and Greg Allman writing and playing with me and Max Weinberg from Springsteen's band with me. You know, this was uh, an inkling that, you know, this was not your father's jazz record for sure. That record rocked and, um, you know, the, the records after that definitely kept going that direction. So this is definitely a blues rock record and... Everyone so far has just been incredibly complimentary and just said, we love this, love the energy, this is so cool. Um, I think I've had, I've had two people come up at concerts over the last, you know, probably six months and just say, I really do like the old you, you know, we, we really miss those songs. Um, but, you know, those two people were about 75 years old. Right. And it, you know, and I think they they played the records. They weren't there to see us live, and and it seemed like a big switch for them. Um, but I, I think ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the people who have followed me for a number of years knew that I would play with all these rockers, and they knew my band always rocked. So uh, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't a big stretch for them. That's cool. Now, now you grew up. Your father was a musician, and now you started playing piano at five, I believe. Did you just did you just feel like you were born into it? How did you sit there and start playing? Yeah, I think if your dad's a firefighter, you know, you want to be a firefighter. It's totally normal. If your mom's a nurse, you know, you might want to be a nurse. It's it's your normal. Uh, but I grew up around music, and I I grew up you know, uh, on the road with my dad's band and, and I'd watch them just do their thing every night. It was fun. It was, you know, it was a blast watching them play. They were just high energy, like a blue eyed soul band with, with some rock and roll. And, you know, my grandmother was an opera singer, so she had this big personality and this, this big voice. And, 
you know, my dad put together a bunch of rock and roll bands to tour when I was growing up. So I was always around those bands for, you know, probably 15 years of my life. Um, and music just seemed normal to have around. So we had instruments around the house and I would just kind of play on them. And um, I think it was the greatest thing that my parents put me in piano lessons because I was just pounded away on the piano. So they gave me, you know, a structure to pound away on the piano with. And then, you know, school band started when I was in fourth grade. I was eight years old. And what a cool thing. I mean, everyone should have school band. What a cool thing that you can go pick an instrument and, and figure out what you want to do and, and learn how to play it in class. And, and uh, I obviously took that way too far, but it was so fun. You know, saxophone's a, it's a really fun instrument. It's an extension of, of you, you know. It just it makes my voice bigger. And as a kid... You know, I wanted to sing like Tina Turner. I wanted to be the, you know, the third sister in heart. And uh, I didn't necessarily have that voice, but with a saxophone, mm, I had that voice and I could do it. <laughs> now, at what age did you know this, you wanted to follow this in your career? I know you went to, uh, I know you ended up going to Berkeley, but what you went, you went to the University of North Florida, I believe, and, and you yeah. won a scholarship and did you sit there and then know, like, when you went to school, what are you thinking, you know, of your career? Because, you know, for me, saxophone, you know, we remember Clarence Clemens, and there's, you know, some Pink Floyd. And if you want to rock, it's yeah. like there wasn't as much sax back then. What were your goals when you were young? Did you sit there and say, I want to be in a jazz band? I mean, what did you think when you went to school, to music school? It's a great question to ask because when I was a kid playing, I never thought about how I was going to make a living at it or what I was going to be. I didn't really even know that there were lines between jazz and rock and blues. I, I didn't didn't think about that. So for me, I just knew that I loved playing and singing and music was just fun and it was a part of me. So I just wanted to go to school for music. I didn't even know what that meant. I, I had no idea, wasn't even thinking about how I was going to make money or what it was going to look like. I knew I wanted to make records. I knew I wanted to be a solo artist. That's the one thing I knew. But I had no idea what that looked like. Um, so, yeah, for me, I, I took my first uh, year at high school. I got offered a scholarship, a full scholarship, um, to a school in Florida that had a really cool music program and I didn't know the difference of different kinds of music I took the scholarship because you know my parents didn't have money to send me to college and uh, that was perfect I got to go to college uh, but that first year I realized it was all traditional jazz and I was in this big band the traditional swingy you know it was all music that our dads would have listened to um, to me you know, there was no rock and roll to it. There was no soul. There was no R&B. There was none of that. And they looked at that as sellout music, you know. And for me, I'm I'm over there rocking my rock and roll records, and they're looking at me just like, ooh, you shouldn't be listening to that. That's, you know, that's not for you. You should be listening to this. Um, and that was traditional jazz. So I knew I wanted to go somewhere else, and uh, I applied to Berkeley and 
Berkeley was that school that just let you be anything you wanted to be. And when I transferred to Berkeley, I mean, I was in a funk band. I was in a rock band. I was in, uh, you know, a jazz band. I, I was in everything. I just played in everything. And it was fun to just expand and play and be. And uh, my saxophone teacher there, Joe Viola, he was like, Mindy, you should, you should start your own band. You know, don't be one of the guys. He was seeing me kind of, you know, try to fit in um, to, to some of the cliques that were there. And he's like, just be you. Start your own band. Write your own music. You know, do your own thing. You've already got your own sound. And um, I did. And that really helped me grow and, and morph and, you know, find my sound. And, and that's how I, you know, kind of came around to uh, be the artist that I am, you know, it's a, it's a morph of jazz and blues and rock and soul and a lot of different styles. Now, back then, and I don't even know, maybe now, was there a lot of females playing the sax? And you said earlier it was hard for you to get marketed because of that. But back then, were you like one of the only females playing the sax? When I went to Berkeley, it was 3% women at that school. And most of that 3% were singers. So there were very few women instrumentalists. And, you know, it, it's something that, that before I went to college, I just never thought of. Uh, m maybe that was such a, you know, that was such a cool thing. No one told me it was odd for a girl to play a saxophone until it was, you know, really too late. I was, I was too far immersed. I was like, no, I'm doing this. This is great. And, uh, you know, even at Berkeley, I, I just thought, well, you know, this is what I do. I, I just never thought about, oh, this is odd. I should do something else. Uh, but I did struggle with kind of the idea of, oh, I'm a woman. People are treating me differently, you know, and that's been a, a huge topic in the last few weeks on, on the news. Um, and, you know, that's, that's crazy to see all of this come out. Um, but in college, I, I realized at, at a gig one night, because I, I worked my way through college, I, was, I played like six nights a week in different clubs, um, all different styles. But one night I was playing a solo, and I thought I was rocking it. And I realized one of the guys at the bar, he was just looking at my legs. <laughs> he didn't care what I was playing. And I was like, uh-uh, you're going to respect me like one of the guys, you know? That's, I want you to listen to what I'm playing. I'm playing some cool stuff here. So uh, I started dressing like the guys. Uh, I would wear men's suits and, and, you know, the tie and the whole thing. And, you know, that's kind of how I dealt with being one of the 3% of women at Berkeley. Uh, in my genius 18-year-old mind, that was the answer. Um, but, you know, obviously that wasn't the answer. And I stopped that. Once I got out of college, I realized, wait, wait, I really don't have to be one of the guys. I can be me. And... I don't have to prove myself as that. And, uh, you know, I can just be me and play the music I want to and be accepted for, for what I am, which is markedly different from what those guys are. So we all find our place, and sometimes it's that straight line, and then sometimes it's, it's uh, you know, a little goofier than that straight line, and that's what mine was. <laughs> it, it makes you, it gets you, to, for me, because I interview a lot of people, it, it irritates me that some people have to go through this. Like for you, the guy's looking at your legs and they're not really taking your music. He's not listening to your music. It's like I had Desmond Child on, and he said he really couldn't produce 
some of the he wrote some great heavy metal songs, but when it came to producing some heavy metal bands, it was hard for him to do it because he was gay, and back then being gay wasn't as you know wasn't looked at like it is now. And it's just sad that you know right. that you sit there and you go, wow, you know, you think of you know, and you've done well, but you think of the people before you that you know that didn't get that break, and, and you know, it, it's got to sort of piss you off. I think that's why your website's good too about the, the girl because I think you know, pretty good for a girl. You're sitting there, you're you're bringing something out with that. Yeah, no, absolutely. It, it, I think you know, as a as a woman in any man's world, and there's there's plenty of us, you know, excelling in in different areas, in you know, areas that are usually male driven. Yeah, I think there are a few more hoops to jump through in, in different ways, you know, and and we have to figure out our path and figure out, you know, how we navigate the waters as a woman uh, in a man's world. And so it does make it a little harder, and a few more do drop off the path on the way. So I always encourage, you know, uh, younger girls to, to play and stick with it and, uh, you know, just to be themselves and, and become excellent at what they do. Um, because, you know, we as women, we're, we're going to play a little bit differently. We're going to emote a little bit differently. We're going to react and, and write music and, and uh, you know, react to the world with songwriting and all of that differently. And, and I think that, uh, you know, the world is a changing place. And one of these days, it's not going to matter whether you're gay or straight or a woman or a man or black or white. You know, that's what that's what you hope that uh, those all those lines blur and that, hey, if you're great at what you do. Awesome. You've got a place. You, you've got your you know, you can make your mark. Exactly. So now, now, after you graduate, after you graduate Berkeley, you go out to L.A. What made you decide to go to L.A.? Was Did you even think about staying back east or did you say I'm going to L.A.? Well, I I wanted to move out of Boston um mostly because I was from Florida and it was really cold in Boston. I mean, let's just get down to, you know, normal living kind of stuff. Oh, my God, Boston is cold. Um, and, you know, to make a living with music, you know, you pretty much have Nashville and the coasts. You know, you have New York, L.A., and Nashville. And uh, at that point, Nashville is pretty country music. Now they've expanded so much. It's such a cool place. Um but L.A. definitely uh, resonated with me. And I was brought out to L.A. by my friend Abraham Laboreal. Uh, actually, this is a kind of crazy story, but um, uh, Barry Manilow needed a new band. And I had, you know, I was just graduating from college, and Abraham Laboreal, who, uh, if, if you don't know, he's the guy who's played drums for Paul McCartney for I mean, it must be 20 years now. I don't know. Um, but what a great guy. and One of my best friends in college. And so Barry Manilow said to Abraham, put together a band of like the cats at Berkeley. And we're going to fly you guys out to L.A. And you're going to audition for me. And we'll see, you know, maybe I'll have this new young, you know, band. So we all flew out to L.A. and auditioned for uh, Barry Manilow. And we did not get the gig. And you know what, that was the right call. I mean, Abraham had his whole head shaved except a ponytail on the top of his head. <laughs> I had hair down in my butt, um, but the sides shaved off. Um, you know, the percussionist looked like Tarzan. We were all, you know, a, 
uh, a bit of kind of rocker misfits in in college. We were the wrong band for Barry Manilow. Let's just put it that way. But I was out in L.A. and I just, you know, saw all that was going on and, and it just seemed seemed right. And so they, you know, they flew us back to Boston and I just gave all the bands I was working in my two-week notice and I packed up everything in my Honda Civic and drove it across the country and, you know, just figured, okay, here I go. I'm moving to L.A. I don't know when. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny now, you know, I look at who you've played with, it's just so diverse. How did you end up playing with Adam Sandler? I mean, that's like something that, you know, you sit there and we all know the Hanukkah song and all that, but how did that come about? It's crazy, isn't it? Um, you know, when I first moved here, I was, I was just, you know, looking for anyone to hire me and it was, it was rough. I mean, you're in Los Angeles, there's uh, just a bunch of amazing uh, musicians on every instrument. They don't need you. You know, I moved here. They didn't need me. Trust me. Uh, but I started just playing anywhere they would let me. And, you know, I started sitting in a club trying to meet people and, um, to play a wedding. And I'm like, yep, of course I'll play a wedding. Sure. I didn't know these guys. I didn't know the band, but sure. I'll play your wedding. It pays. Right. Um, so I showed up and I played the wedding and um, I handed out a couple of business cards that I had printed, and one of those people called me, and it was a wedding for a musician. And I, I, I recognized a few people in the, you know, in the audience. It was the wedding party and stuff. And I just thought, oh, these are musicians. Huh, cool. And the band I was playing with was very good. And, you know, it was my first time playing with them. So this guy called me out of the blue, and he goes, hey, I'm a, I'm a drummer, and you know, Adam Sandler's putting together a band and it's a bunch of, you know, amazing people. Waddy Wachtel is going to be the music director and, you know, just all these ridiculous rock musicians are going to be the band. We need someone to, to sing backgrounds and play sax. And uh, so I said, sure. And little did I know I was getting myself into probably a 200-girl audition process. I mean, they just went through us for days going back and forth with who sounded good together, who didn't. Um, but I was chosen, and uh, it was it was absolutely the most fun anyone can have uh, ever. Adam couldn't be a, a greater guy, and we had the time of our lives on the road and making the records, and I've worked with him ever since. I mean, I've done anything he does with saxophone, I've been on, and it's been 20 to 23 years well, I've, and I've always, he just uses that family yeah I've always heard about him I, you know I know people who know him I've always heard he's like that he's very loyal to people he worked with you know even you know I mean him and Judd Apatow were buddies in college you know what I mean so he's one of those guys that yeah. once he works with you he feels comfortable with you and he's going to stay with you which is great and that's probably why you know that's how good material gets made so, so you play with him. Now, you also play with the Backstreet Boys. What is that like? And it must be, those shows must have been bedlam. I mean, it must have been, like, because you know how people reacted to the Backstreet Boys. What was that like? How'd you get that game? Oh, yeah. What was it like performing where it's just, you know, I'm sure it's daughters and their moms. <laughs> it must have been a crazy. Oh, yeah. How did you end up with that gig? The Backstreet Boys shows were just sheer pandemonium. I mean, it was 60,000 
screaming girls and their moms just going crazy, fainting, being taken away on stretchers. I mean, when we drove into a city, there would be thousands of girls in the streets, thousands of girls camped out around our hotel, singing all night to the guys. You know, I mean, it was just walking into a very surreal world. And I got hired kind of out of the blue. I just got a phone call one day uh, saying, hey, I'm so-and-so with the Backstreet Boys and looking for someone who plays saxophone, keyboards, and percussion. And you've been referred to us by, you know, probably four people. Because, you know, honestly, there weren't that many people that, that doubled on different instruments. And I was lucky that, you know, keyboards and saxophone were easy for me. Percussion was, you know, something I wasn't as great at. Um, but you know what? I was like, yeah, I can play that. So uh, the guy came over to my house and I showed him a couple videos and I played for him and he looked at me and he goes, all right, um, you're going to leave for Belgium in three days. And this is, you know, an 18 month tour. And um, yeah, you're hired. <laughs> so, I mean, it was all of a sudden, you know, just a 180 change in my life for sure to get hired on something that big. Um, but I, I just have to say to see the world through their eyes um, was just amazing. You know, it was, it was a great life experience. And uh, I just became friends with those guys and, and saw how hard they worked. And, you know, it, it was great to be a part of that inner circle and, and uh, kind of see the world as a rock star and, and get to experience it like that because, you know, uh, not many people get to see the world through those kind of eyes. So, yeah, it was it was amazing. And, you know, being on stage with that kind of pandemonium every night, it's it's definitely a, a different way to perform and a different, you know, uh, kind of way to look at an audience. I mean, it's just a sea of people. <laughs> it's crazy. Do you have to really play up to the crowd I mean, is it something that, you know, you, cause you want to be, I mean, they're, they're watching the Backstreet Boys, but for you, you want to make, you know, you want to be noticed. Is it harder to play for a very big audience where, you know, there'll be, as you said, pandemonium and bedlam, everyone's screaming. Is it harder to play for a bigger audience? Is, is it harder to play for a more intimate audience? I think playing for different size audiences, you know, different, definitely takes different skills, different skill sets. I played on the street when I first moved to L.A. because I just wanted to do what I do. I didn't want to say, do you want fries with that? You know, I had a degree from the number one music college in the world. You know, I, I was like, if you're not going to hire me. I'm just going to stand out on the street and, you know, I'm going to pay my rent that way. So, you know, I got to play facts. Um, but having people, you know, a foot from you or crowded in around you, it's it's a little daunting. It's It's personal space and it's kind of crazy having to perform in that close of, you know, quarters with people on the street. Um, but then, you know, put that up against, you know, playing for 60,000, 100,000 people, you know, with the Backstreet Boys, it can be very anonymous. You can look out at that sea of people. You're not looking anyone directly in the eye. It almost just becomes you're doing your thing um, in this bigger than life setting, but it, it almost doesn't even compute because it's so big you're just doing your thing and there's a bunch of people out there but they're not staring you in the face and uh so in ways playing for 
really big audiences is easier than looking someone in the eye, singing your song to them or playing a song to them. Um, but you do get that adrenaline rush from just the excitement of it. You know, you got people screaming and yelling and, and, uh, you know, just into it. You can't help but be, uh, you know, taken in with that energy and, and just, you know, emote with, with all of that. Now, you also play for Aerosmith, which is, this, this story seems pretty fascinating because you got that from being an American Idol. How did you end up being an American Idol? And then what is it like, I mean, to play with, I mean, the Backstreet Boys are big, but Aerosmith is a rock and roll Hall of Fame <laughs> band. I mean, everybody, you know, we grew up listening to Aerosmith. What, how did that all happen? Yeah. You just, the American Idol gig, you, they, did they call you and you sat in for you thought it was going to be a few shows? Yeah, I got a call one night from Don Was, and Don is one of my favorite producers. I, I've always wanted to do a record with Don, and it's it's never happened, but uh, it, we always come close. And uh, I'm such a fan, and he's such a great guy. Um, so he calls me up one night, leaves a message on my machine. Hey, Mindy, real nonchalant. You know, I'm in the studio. They hired me to do a few of these American Idol uh, performers and produce them. And I'm doing old-time rock and roll with this one guy, and it'd be really cool for you to come in and do a, a sax solo. You know, I think if you do it in the studio, they'll probably use you on the show. And uh, I don't know, about 26 million people a, a night watch that. That could be a cool thing, huh? Well, give me a call. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I called him back pretty quickly, and I was in the studio doing that with them. And sure enough, they had me on the show, and I did old-time rock and roll, and uh, it was great. It was fun to be a part of someone else's career. I mean, at that point, I had been a solo artist for years and years and years in my little bubble of, you know, writing my own songs and playing with my band in my little, you know, my little uh, world that I had created. And it was fun to reach out and kind of do something with someone else. And so that snowballed, and it, it kind of became whenever they had a sax feature, they'd call me. And how fun is that, you know? So I wasn't on every week, but I would come in whenever they had sax features and, and be featured with the artist and, and play on the tracks. And uh, the second season, Philip Phillips was just a huge saxophone fan. Uh, you know, he was a big fan of Dave Matthews, and Dave Matthews used a saxophone on everything, so there I was. And, you know, Philip Phillips won it all, so it was great. We went to the very finale, and uh, they didn't need me on the finale, which I was probably bummed, you know. I was sitting at home like, no, oh, they're recording the finale today, and, you know, I've been on, like, every show, and uh, and I'm not on the finale, whatever. Then my phone rings at, like, 10 in the morning. Mindy, we need you. Get down here. Oh, okay, cool. Hey, you know. So I start getting my stuff ready, put put on some makeup, and and uh, phone rings like five minutes later. Mindy, bring all your horns, and, and we need you down here like right now. Let's go. Quick, you know. Like, wow, okay, what am I playing? I don't know. I don't know. Just get down here. Okay. Sure, sure. So I'm packing everything up. Stop putting on the makeup. Like, okay, I'm just going to, I'm just going to go over there. And uh, the phone rings again. I'm like, oh, my God, really, guys? And uh, this time, Mindy, Steven Tyler, what, what are we doing? Uh, time's running out. we got to do this. I mean, it's time. 
I wonder, what are we thinking? And I just, you know, A, how did Steven Tyler get my phone number? <laughs> B, what is he talking about? I don't know we're running out of time. I don't know we've got to do this. What is this? What? So I go over to the set, and uh, I go to Steven's trailer, and he plays me the new Aerosmith record. It's just me and him in the trailer, and he's just rocking this new record, and he's singing with himself on the record, like right into my face. Just, I mean, just singing right at me. And he's like, play, come on. And so I get to get out the horn, and I start playing with him, and he's singing. And he goes, but you could sing, too. Sing this, you know? So he sings something crazy, and I sing it back to him. And he looked at me, and he goes, all right, you're hired. You're going to join Aerosmith. We haven't had a sax player <laughs> since 1973. Uh, I want it to be bigger. And I want it to be, you know, a party. And so... You know, I want you to sing with me. I want you to play, and, and let's just do this. And, and you can't say no to that. You can't right. say no to Steven Tyler. I mean, are, are you kidding me? Like, uh, yeah. So, you know, so I joined them for their summer tour, and it was my summer vacation with Aerosmith, and it was it was just awesome. Love those guys. <laughs> and, I mean, you've gone to these tours. What was, you just recently got off the road. What was your latest tour like with the Bone Shakers? Yeah, we just haven't stopped. I mean, we joined forces probably three years ago. Um, it was kind of crazy. Our first show together, I uh, I said to my friend in Seattle, our first show was in Seattle, I said to my friend, just record it because I just want it because this band is nuts and it's so good and I just, I just want it for myself. That became our live record. I mean, the first show we ever played together as a band became our live record. That's crazy. Um, I, I don't know of anyone who's done that. And since then, I mean, we've just been nonstop, and it's a blast. And we just keep getting closer and getting tighter as, you know, a family, as friends, as music makers with each other. Um, this last um, last week of touring that we did, we were up in Northern California, and, and we were in Chicago, and we were in Scottsdale, Arizona, and uh, while we were in Northern California, our road manager runs a studio up there, a real beautiful recording studio, 25th Street Recording. And we went in, we had a couple hours, you know, we, we had a, a show the night before, and then we had a show that night. And I just said, let's go into the studio, let's do a Christmas song, let's get crazy. We got a couple hours. Sure enough, within three hours, we had uh, Run Run Rudolph, and it was recorded and mixed and mastered and we went to our next show that night and uh and it was a blast so i i can't say enough about what amazing musicians these guys are but you know we're just a family at this point and it's it's just really fun to be out there with people you love and that you're proud to stand on stage with every night and that you're proud of the music you make together and and that's what this is and and you know how can you ask for more than that Exactly. You know, I want to. I want to thank you for taking the time. This has been great, and I didn't even get to the Springsteen part with you, but I'll have to, I'll have to hear that another time. But uh, so now, how, yeah. can they find the, the Christmas? Can you find that anywhere? The Christmas song. Yeah, I just posted it on YouTube. If you go to, you know, uh, Mindy Abel on YouTube, um, or go to my Facebook page, facebook.com/slash Mindy Abel, M-I-N-D-I-A-B-A-I-R. 
um, you can find it. And uh, it should be on Apple Music, should be on Spotify. Um, we're not selling it. We're just giving it away. And, and we have the making of the video in the studio um, on YouTube and on my Facebook page. So, yeah, it's fun. you got to get in the holiday spirit. It's time now, right? Exactly. I just moved back east after being 20 years on the West Coast, and I can actually enjoy it because it's going to be cold, and I can never I can never go Christmas shopping with shorts on, I mean, or get a Christmas tree. It's never felt right. So now I'll be freezing my ass off in a month, but it's still it's getting Christmas oh, yeah. for me. So, okay, so the website is MindyABear.com, and people, it's a great website. You can get CDs. You can get wine. You can get merch. You can get a bunch of stuff there. Join the fan club. Go check out Pretty for Pretty for uh, Pretty Good for a Girl. So people go to the website. Are you on Twitter? Yep. Yeah. Twitter.com slash Mindy A Bear. Okay. Well so people and, uh, and go to prettygoodforagirl.net. It's so fun and you can actually you can upload a video of yourself, um, you know, for you women out there who kick ass. Upload a video of yourself doing what you do in action and we're gonna make a a music video for Pretty Good for a Girl, which is me and Joe Bonamassa, you know, touring back and or touring, playing back and forth um, for seven minutes, basically. And I wanted to make the girl power video. So on prettygoodforagirl.net, you can upload your, your videos and be a part of that, which is cool. Well, that's awesome. So people go, please go to MindyABear.com, follow the links, go to YouTube, Listen to her music, listen to her solo albums, listen to the Bone Shakers, listen to it all. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find 600 and around 60 episodes up there. You can email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. I will answer your questions. If you have guests you want, I'll try to get them. Twitter, I'm at coopertalk. Instagram, at coopertalk1. And don't forget my other site, stopthesalt.com. When I had that uh, health scare a few years ago, when I got out, I wrote a cookbook. It's 120 low sodium recipes no pictures to intimidate you no long list of ingredients to get you crazy it's for basically people who don't really know how to cook but want to so you can get it on amazon but you can also go to stopthesalt.com and that way i make more money and i'll sign it for you so people follow in mindy check out all her social media i'm steve cooper i'm only as hip as my guest don't forget drink your water eat your vegetables take your vitamins and i'll talk to you guys next week